The Sleeping Beauty in the Woods is one of the most well-known fairy tales. It is a beloved subject matter for artists and illustrators, meaning it's in almost every collection of fairy tales we read as children. But it is one of the least child-friendly stories in its earlier forms. And today, when I explore its history, I'm going to be talking about some adult themes. So please bear that in mind and don't listen if there are children present. One of those themes is of sexual violence. So if that's an uncomfortable topic for you, please proceed with caution. I'm not talking about anything explicit or graphic, but you know, it's dark territory. Fairy tales often deal with dark and scary places in our humanity. I feel it helps us articulate our fears, gives them a name and a story through which we can understand our fears. Sleeping Beauty is often a more violent tale than its cousin Snow White. Since its earliest recordings in Basile's Il Pentamarone, it has held themes of rape, adultery and cannibalism. What we know as a romantic and innocent tale of a 16-year-old girl being woken with love's true kiss is normally only the prologue to a longer and more disturbing story. I'm Claire Testoni, and this is Singing Bones. And this week we are going deep into the woods to find the maiden sleeping in the tower. The origin of Sleeping Beauty has its roots in two broader oral traditions. Brunhilde, from the Norse mythology, the Shield Maiden, and the Valkyrie, that is such a big cornerstone of Germanic mythology. And a French Arthurian, as in King Arthur, story of Zelandine. Both women are awoken from magical slumbers. Brunhild sleeps in a ring of magical fire in the top of a tower and is rescued by Siegfried. No kissing necessary, and it kicks off one of the most action-packed love stories of all time. It's the beginning of the Volsunga Saga, a 13th century Icelandic saga that eventually became the more familiar Ring Cycle, of, made famous by Wagner's operas. Or if that rings no bells, you might remember Bugs Bunny in drag as Brunhild and Elmer Fudd as Siegfried. And that's how mythology lives on. <laughs> the other origin is the story of Zeladine, comes from a similar era and moves closer to the sleeping beauty we know today. First recorded in 1330-ish, the surviving versions we have are written by David Obert around 1460. It's a French romance that tells the story of King Arthur and the unification of England. Highly fictionalised, of course. The story goes that at Zelandine's birth, three goddesses were invited. Lucina, Themis and Venus. 
Themis was upset that the knife she was given to eat with was not as fine as those provided for the other goddesses. So after Lucina promises health and a good reputation to the baby, Themis curses the child so that the first time she touches a piece of flax, it would stab her finger and put her into a sleep from which she would not waken. It is Venus who uses her powers to save Zelendine's life. Once Zelendine is under the sleeping curse, Venus leads a handsome young man, Troilus, to the sleeping child, where he tries to wake her. But finding he can't, Troilus has sex with her anyway while she's sleeping and leaves. Yeah. Zelendine becomes pregnant and does not wake for the birth, but only when the baby begins to suckle at her breast is her magic slumber woken. Yeah, it's not my favourite story. It is interesting, though, that the three goddesses and Venus's intervention appears as the bridging point between Roman myth and the later versions of the fairy tale, which would be about slighted fairies. The text in Peace Forest actually mentions the tale of Cupid and Psyche, which I talked about in my Beauty and the Beast episode, and is often considered the first fairy tale. The text reads like this. It is told how Zephyr, in the form of a bird, offers Troilus transport to the tower in which the beautiful Zelandine is in an enchanted sleep. The knight accepts, and by this vehicle that once carried Psyche to that palace of love, he arrives without the use of ladder in the beautiful Zelandine's chamber. He sees at one side a richly adorned bed, grand enough for a queen. The canopy and the curtains were whiter than snow. He hesitates to approach for a long time, like the true friend who is valiant in his thoughts, but cowardly in his deeds. He then tries to wake the young girl, but is finally conquered by the maiden's charms, for she slept like a beautiful goddess, as tender and as red as a rose, with her white flesh like a lily. He speaks a long discourse, begging forgiveness for his grand liberties, and sorrowfully, he decided to follow the tenets of Venus. Yeah, it doesn't really matter how sorrowful you are, just still asleep. <laughs> Greek and Roman myths can often be summarised with the moral, don't piss off the gods. In fairy tales, especially those from England, Ireland and France, you can sometimes sum them up as, don't piss off a fairy. So, Zelandine collides with the Celtic traditions of fairies, and we get Charles Perrault's version of Sleeping Beauty, or The Sleeping Beauty in the Woods. Perrault has seven attending fairies at the christening of his unnamed princess, but an eighth forgotten fairy crashes, and is so upset to have not been invited that she curses the child to prick her hand on a spindle and fall down dead. No deadline is given in this version, like in the Grimm's tale Briar Rose, which has 12 fairies invited, with the 13th being the one to deliver the curse. 
In Basile's earlier version, called Sun, Moon, and Talia, the princess is Talia, and it is her horoscope at her birth that tells of her allergy to flax that will be her end. Italian tales are not big on fairies. They're not completely without them, but even when they do appear, they don't behave in the way French or English ones do. And often an Italian tale will replace a fairy with a saint or the Virgin Mary. Go figure. Fairies are a mythology into themselves, and I don't want to get too bogged down in them now, but they are human-sized, not Tinkerbell-sized, and for the various Celtic nations, which originally lived in Ireland, England, Scotland, and France, Fairyland, the world in which they dwelled, was a closer to Hell or Hades, mishmashed with Enid Blyton. Don't eat or drink if you find yourself in Fairyland. That's the main rule. Fairies love making bargains. They love to steal children, capture attractive young people, and dance. They love dancing. To appease fairies, people would often make offerings of milk or bread in hope that they wouldn't hurt their livestock or children. And the implication at the beginning of the Sleeping Beauty stories is that the king and the queen got their offerings to the fairies wrong. Not enough gold plates, invited the wrong one, said the wrong thing. Anyway, so Sleeping Beauty, she pricks her finger when she's old enough to be considered sexually mature. For most versions, this is at age 15. In the Perrault and Grimm versions, the curse has been downgraded to 100 years sleep. In Basile's, the details were always a little vague. It was a horoscope, not a fairy. And when has a horoscope ever been specific? They cut right to the sleep and the awakening. In Basile's version, her father locks the house with his sleeping daughter and walks away, wanting to forget his comatose child. And after a time, a king, who is already married from a neighbouring kingdom, happens upon the locked-up manor. He finds the Sleeping Beauty and does what Troilus did before, impregnating her without waking her up and leaving. The king comes back several months later to the manor to find out she's awake and she's given birth to twins she names Sun and Moon. And he sets up his secret second family in the woods. I wonder if her being asleep for the sex act is a cover for the infidelity here. The Sleeping Beauty's passivity in Basile's version and in the story of Zeladine, absolves her of committing a sinful act. It could be that this horrible detail was originally intended to make it less horrible to people whose main objection would have been sex out of wedlock, not consenting to sex acts. Many have simply read the sleep as a metaphor for sexuality and that her awakening is her entering into maturity. Which I guess it is if you go to sleep a virgin teenager and wake up a mother of twins. The Dark Ages really sucked. 
In Perrault's version, a hundred years pass and the woods around the Sleeping Princess have become wild and rumours of her sleeping in her tower attract the attention of a prince, who is at least single. He gets there just as the hundred years are ending. He walks in just as the princess wakes up. And for once, the poor girl does not get raped. They don't even kiss. Instead, they talk, if you can believe it, and fall in love. This is just where the story starts for Sleeping Beauty. The prince doesn't tell his mother about the bride in the forest, because she is an ogre, literally. In Basile's version, it's his wife. The king's married, remember? She's not an ogre, just pissed about the king having a secret second family in the woods. And who can blame her? In both, the wicked women plan their revenge by deciding to eat the children from the union. First the little girl, then the little boy, and finally Talia slash Beauty herself. A quick-thinking cook hides the children and feeds the queen lamb and venison instead, sating her voracious, wicked hunger. In Basile's version, the queen makes Talia strip and hand over the beautiful clothes she wears before preparing to burn her alive. In a degrading and sexually charged scene, each layer of shifts and petticoats leads Talia closer to her doom. Just then, the king turns up and puts a stop to it and kills his evil wife. And he and his new wife and two children live happily ever after. This second act of Sleeping Beauty was the inspiration behind Anne Rice's erotic BDSM trilogy, also called Sleeping Beauty. Rice made the prince an inhabitant of a dark court that trains young nobles in the art of submission and dominance. It's considered a classic of the genre, as I understand it, and it certainly seems to fit into the erotic and disturbing themes of Sleeping Beauty. If that's your jam, check it out. Now, the Grimm Brothers version of Sleeping Beauty has no third act. They named it Little Briar Rose. And recorded in 1812, it's not simply a flax-induced allergy that puts her into sleep, but a spinning wheel and pricking her finger on the needle of a spinning wheel. She falls asleep along with everyone in her court, including her mother and father, so she doesn't end up waking up alone and at the mercy of ogres like in previous versions. A hedge of thorns grows up over the castle, hiding it from view and preventing would-be suitors from waking the princess. Again, a passing king gets lucky and turns up just as a hundred years are ending, and the thorns around the castle turn to roses and let him past. He finds the princess and kisses her just as she's waking up. So it's borderline consensual? The grim version is the one we tend to know. It's the version 
that the ballet by Tchaikovsky follows, and the Disney version is in turn inspired by the ballet. The Grimm's almost didn't include Briar Rose in their collection, as they were worried it was too similar to Perrault, and thus not German enough. So they write a little postscript at the end, pointing out its similarities to Brunhild in the ring cycle, and saying essentially, yeah, we know it's a little like Basile's and Perrault's version, but it was German first. Later versions of Sleeping Beauty emerge in India, Palestine, Chile and Ireland. There's a particularly wonderful Egyptian version, sometimes wrongly attributed to the Thousand and One Nights collection, called The Ninth Captain's Tale, that blends the style of the Shahrazade tales with Sleeping Beauty. And if we're going the full fairy business, there is a wonderful Irish tale about a new bride called Ethna, who is desired by the fairies for her beauty. She falls into an enchanted sleep while her spirit passes into the fairy kingdom, and she cannot wake. Her husband digs to fairyland and forces the king of the fairies to release his bride. And when he does, she wakes up. This is in keeping with other Irish and Welsh tales of fairies like Tamlin, about people becoming prisoners to the fairy court. Ethna the Bride was collected by one of my favourite fairy tale tellers, Jane Francesca Wilde, mother of Oscar Wilde. She was a prolific collector of Irish fairy tales, an Irish nationalist, and a suffragist, and an all-around badass. You might wonder why the theme of flax and spinning wheels is such an enduring villain in Sleeping Beauty. It seems odd to our modern lives when we don't generally spin our own thread. It could be that the detail travels so well because from Sweden to India, people combed flax and spun thread. It could also be that many tales were told during domestic chores such as spinning and weaving when your hands were busy but you could talk and concentrate on other things. It could also be that spinning threads and spinning wheels have been associated with fate. From the ancient Greek fates, who wove the tapestry of all things, through to Shakespeare, the wheels and threads were often expressions of destiny. I guess it's a metaphor for how one small action can be part of a greater picture. So for Sleeping Beauty, her fate is inescapable. It is just one string adding to the tapestry. You find similar themes of fate in other tales featuring spinning, like Rumpelstiltskin. And I know you're all wondering about real Sleeping Beauties. Did someone really go into a coma and inspire the tale? There's no historic record that can be linked to the tale, like the Pied Piper, or Snow White, or Bluebeard, which will be coming up in a few weeks. However, sleep was a very mysterious thing for people in the Middle Ages, and little understood. 
there is a medical condition known as Klein-Levin syndrome, in which sufferers sleep for days on end and cannot be woken for more than being fed or watered, often in a semi-sleep state. It's a condition that's more common in males than in females, and it normally starts in adolescence and is outgrown in time. It is extremely rare, though. About one in one million people are reported to suffer from it. However, the numbers are slightly higher in France, at three in two million sufferers. And it occurs more frequently in Jewish bloodlines in Israel and the US. There is a beautiful Jewish Sleeping Beauty tale called Romana, which upon rereading, it feels much closer to Snow White, but is perhaps the origin of both stories. With the exile of the Jewish people from parts of Western Europe in the Middle Ages, many Jews were forced from their homelands and many wonderful Jewish stories found their way into Gentile imaginations. Romana has it all. A glass coffin, 40 thieves, and a magic ring. I'm definitely putting it up on the website, but I'm going to put it up with the Snow White Tales, where it rightly belongs. And I'm sad I missed it for that episode. Perrault's Sleeping Beauty ends with a moral, as many of his tales did. Perrault's day job in the court of Louis XIV was coming up with quotes and short phrases to put on buildings. He was king of the 150 word limit. His moral is a rhyme which speaks to the sexuality and youth of the tale, to love out of wedlock, and points out that poor sleeping beauty had waited long enough. Many a girl has waited long for a husband brave or strong, but I'm sure I've never met any sort of woman yet who could wait a hundred years free from fretting, free from fears. Now our story seems to show that a century or so, late or early matters not, true love comes by fairy lot. Some old folk will even say it grows better by delay. Yet this good advice, I fear, helps us neither here nor there. Though philosophers may prate how much wiser tis to wait, maids will be a sighing still. Young blood must what young blood will. To read the stories I've talked about this episode, head to my website, singingbonespodcast.com, and click on Fairy Tales. I also have galleries of illustrations that you can look at, and there's lots of fun things. If you want to support the show and keep the stories coming, please donate to our Patreon page, which you can find on our website, or buy a puppet. I've created downloadable shadow puppets of fairy tale characters that you can buy on the website. First is a Beauty and the Beast set, and I'll be making a new set each month from now on. In two weeks, it will be the last episode for this season. It will be on the tale for which I named this show, The Singing Bones, which is one of the oldest and most universal of tales. 
found in China, West Africa, and most places in between. And after that, for my seventh show, because seven is the magic number in fairy tales, I'll be doing an episode not on a tale, but on a tale teller. Here on the show, I end up talking very briefly about the figures that collected and preserved the oral history of folklore. But every seventh show, I'm going to be taking some time to go into more depth about collectors' methods and lives and how it influenced the stories they preserved. I'll be starting with the Brothers Grimm, of course, since I'm sure that's what you're almost curious about, but I'll also be talking about the women they collected their tales from. So, till next time, I'm wishing you a happily ever after.